Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Azure. This episode is sponsored by Solveto. Continuous learning is the driver for success, growth, and well-being. Learn or expire and keep your Azure skills up to date. Act now by going to solveto.fi slash pro. I'm Tobias, and I'm back again with UC. What's up? Hey, Tobias. I think you might recall, and perhaps somebody in the audience might recall, that we built a house last year, and we moved into the house about a half a year ago. And, and now, in the past few months, we've started on finalizing and adding, you know, the missing details here and there, like a fixed light there, a picture on the wall here. Now that we've lived there for a couple of months, you sort of know what's missing. So what I did is I hired a certified electrician to, to fix some of the trickier lights. We have, we have this massive LED light on top of the kitchen island, or, or we wanted to have that installed there. Everything was going smoothly. And I was in the living room tapping away on my laptop. And then I heard a massive bang back to the kitchen. The electrician dropped a hammer and it landed on the fairly fancy cooktop we have on the kitchen island. I mean, that's now in super tiny pieces because it 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 has this glass glass top. So oh, I called no. the insurance and it's obviously covered, but it's a massive hassle. And the replacement cooktop isn't available until five months from now. So now I'm negotiating with the kids if they are okay if we do takeout for the next five months. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good to me. Takeout for five months, solid 30 days a month. It's it's pretty good. But, uh, I, you know, this reminds me, just a super short side story there. It reminds me when I grew up, we were renovating the, the pipes in the building we live in, so we couldn't yep. use anything for five weeks. No water, uh, anything like that. So we had to go to the gym or somewhere to shower and we couldn't cook. So we went through one of the local restaurants. We went through every item on the menu. <laughs> uh, every day we had dinner at the restaurant, went through every item on the menu. When we were finished with one restaurant, we went to the next one. We started from the top and we went through everything on the menu. So we did that for two restaurants. So that might be an idea. But yeah, it sucks with the uh, the broken uh, kitchen top. And uh, that's never fun, especially when you just put it there. So on my side, I'm... Finding the you know good and healthy work-life balance again, which can be tricky. I think I found mine now after settling into the new role I have at Microsoft, and it's not always a straight road, uh, but it's it's getting there. And yeah, just learning to navigate the landscape, if you will. So with that, uh, it's now officially also spring around my neck of the woods, which is in Sweden determined by having above zero degrees for seven days straight. So it's now time to start planning the gardening efforts, which does take a considerable amount of my off hours. So that's one of my big interests. I'm not great at growing like flowers and pretty stuff in the garden, but I would consider myself pretty great at uh, growing things that you can eat. So for at least five to six months a year, we are self-sufficient with vegetables and onions and carrots and all these kind of things in the garden. So I'm looking forward to start that up now. When the frost is almost over, uh, I can plant the seeds and then move them outdoors in perhaps a month. So that's what I'm up to. Sounds, sounds awesome. So today we'll talk about Azure Virtual Desktop or AVD. And I did look this up. We talked about Microsoft DevBox during episode 149. And we also talked about Windows 365 uh, on episode 94, we'll put both, both of the links to the show notes. So 
I, I think it's only logical to tackle the service that sort of powers Microsoft DevBox and Windows 365, which is Azure Virtual. How is your uh, exposure to AVD or DevBox or Windows 365 nowadays? Uh, I don't use DevBox. I don't use Windows 365, and I don't use Azure Virtual Desktop. So minimal exposure on that angle. I've tried Windows 365, which is pretty convenient. Uh, I've tried Azure Virtual Desktop, which is also pretty convenient. Uh, I never set it up. I, I tried it on an existing installation, but yeah, minimal exposure for me. I you know I I don't need that in in my current role. So that's that's pretty much it. What about you? Fair enough. Uh DevBox, no, it has a little bit too many moving parts for for my personal needs. And professionally, I can run whatever I need locally on on the beefy desktop PC that I'm using right now. And also, I'm virtualizing Windows both in Azure and on the laptop when I'm on the go. But I, I just use plain old VMs and configure them as I like. Windows 365, it's great, but I think it's a little bit on the expensive side if you use it quite frequently and you want to tinker with a lot of the settings, even if it's not always necessary. So. Azure Virtual Desktop is a VDI, a virtual desktop infrastructure in the cloud, meaning you can spin up a pool of Windows workstations, Windows 10, Windows 11, VMs for your users. Why wouldn't you go with Windows 365 then? Perhaps the idea here is that you want to give pooled access, meaning let's say you spin up 10 Windows VMs, and then you have 50 users and they might occasionally need something on those VMs, perhaps running a specific legacy application or something they cannot run locally or, or it's not supported on the local hardware. Then it will be always in the cloud, but you're pooling the access to those VMs and you're exposing just the app. You could of, of, of course expose the whole VM for your users. That's, that's sort of the thing now with, with AVD as your virtual desktop. Does this make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. Um, and I do see the need of these things. And in the past, both as a consultant and working with different companies, I saw a lot of people using VMs and you yeah, you used all kinds of different ways to get remote access to whatever services you have. And uh, I think that's kind of a progression of what we used to do. You connected to a, v, a VPN and then you connected to the corporate network in either you used file shares to access things and did things locally, or you connected to a VM somewhere in the cloud or somewhere on-prem. Uh, so I think this is a kind of natural evolution, making things smoother for organizations in, in doing that. Yep, agreed. And, and perhaps I wouldn't approach AVD as a solution for, let's say, a professional developer, because the professional developer typically needs to install all sorts of things on their workstation. So they might have a beefy laptop, or they have a dev box or a custom VM and they can just do whatever they, they want with those. So I feel AVD is more targeted for information workers, for office workers who need to run a predefined set of applications, perhaps browser-based stuff, perhaps something locally installed, and they might need that intermittently. Maybe every Monday they need to run a report or they might need it daily and they would then have a personal VM, but it would be centrally managed. And obviously they need some sort of a device to access those. But that device could be a nice tablet device like an iPad, 
or it could be a fixed workstation that doesn't really have to have anything except the icon for accessing to remote desktop to that VM or those apps that VM is exposing. So just in case somebody's listening on this and going, well, I've heard about remote app or terminal services or remote desktop services. This is sort of the evolution from all of those. And I guess remote desktop services still exists in the on-prem world in, in some way or another. But now in the cloud, AVD is the solution for virtualizing workstations to share for your users for personal use or for pool deck. That's That's really it. Yep, yep, that makes sense. So, and one thing that I've I, I took a look at, like how to deploy this stuff. So, what kind of deployment models do we have? Because that's like looking back to what you just mentioned, and uh, with remote desktop services, and and what I mentioned that you had a VPN and you connected to whatever type of VMs you could or or machines on your on-prem network and stuff like that. So, in order to run this, I suspect that you need to deploy it somehow, and you need to have this service established. So, what is required? to get there? Like what different models do we have of deployment? Is it like cloud only or do we have hybrid? Do we have on-prem even? Like how does it work? So I, I have to openly admit, I'm not a huge expert on AVD, but it shares a lot of the underlying technology from stuff I know fairly well. So getting the basics of AVD was, was fairly trivial in that sense, but obviously, there's a lot of configuration you can do, a lot of tinkering you can do when you start really deploying this. But for the longest of times when AVD became available, for the longest of times I felt that, okay, you need an on-premises active directory. You need hybrid identities, meaning that you're somehow synchronizing those on-prem AD identities to Azure AD. You need a hybrid setup essentially. And then you could deploy AVD so that it would talk back with your AD to, to grant you single sign-on effectively for your users. So this is probably the, the classic way of deploying AVD. You have everything in place already. You just need to extend those workstations to the cloud. But what's also available now, and I'm not sure for how long, but it's a newer option, is that you can do a cloud-only deployment of AVD. AVD. So you do not need to deploy an on-prem AD to do, let's say, a lab setup of this. You can just spin up the, the, the VM pools and configure and off you go. What you can do though, is that if you do cloud only, obviously you're relying on Azure AD, but you can also expand that to Azure Active Directory domain services, or is it directory services? I think domain services, AADDS. So, so that's the Microsoft managed domain controllers for you that leverage what you already have in Azure AD. So in, in essence, you have three options. You have the hybrid with on-prem AD, you have cloud only with Azure AD only, and cloud only with Azure AD and AAD DS. Is this complex enough? <laughs> I mean, the, the topic itself can be pretty complex, but it can also be broken down to a fairly easy to grasp concept. So I, I took a look, what you just said makes perfect sense. Cause I took a look at the oral documentation. I did talk recently with a couple of customers who are using this in, in their kind of enterprise setup. And one consultant who, where they're using this in a smaller company as well. So it doesn't have to be complex setting this up. 
but most of the time I hear about enterprises and the, the setup there can be fairly complex. But I think this narrows it down like hybrid, cloud only, or cloud only with ADD, AADDS. So that makes perfect sense. So there's a bit of planning, there's a bit of designing. So there's obviously things to consider about that. So, you know, what are what are the other considerations? Now, let's say, okay, we know how we're going to deploy it. So the deployment model that we opted for now is cloud only or hybrid or whatever, you know, because it's whatever fits the bill for our company. So we decided on that. What's what's kind of the next step? What is the th considerations, if you will, that we need to think about? So obviously you need to think, how are your users connecting to your AVD VMs? They are VMs essentially, even if you have the sort of orchestration layer from AVD on top of those. But how will your users connect to those VMs? Perhaps the users travel to the office and they simply leverage, perhaps you have a site-to-site -site VPN or extra thread already connecting you to Azure. Perhaps, as is, I, I, I think, fairly normal nowadays, that users are constantly working remotely from home, from a cafe, from the summer cabin, and so on. How do you want to route users to connect to your AVD VMs? Just through plain old internet, or obviously secured with RDP, or something perhaps dictating a VPN connection in between. And then what sort of clients do you want to support? So you have native Windows support, you have native mobile device support for iOS and, and Android, browser support, and also Mac OS support. I think for Linux, you have to use either uh, a virtual instance of maybe a Windows, or you have to use the browser-based approach. And also, uh, is there anything else that you need to scale or plan before that? But in essence, when you spin up Windows 10 or Windows 11 VMs, you will treat those almost as they would be your regular workstation. So perhaps the connectivity and the client distribution and, and of course, educating the users how to access what, those, those would be the next steps in planning and designing for this. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And one thing that comes to mind here as well, uh, coming back to like enterprises and, and building for enterprise scale stuff, is I know that there is something called an enterprise scale support for Azure Virtual Desktop. And that's like an Azure landing zone accelerator, if you will, for AVD, where that prepares your organization for a sustainable scaling for your AVD setup. That is modular by design, and that allows for customization of variables when you deploy it. So the Azure Virtual Desktop Accelerator is designed to deploy an Azure Virtual Desktop workload, and that is recommended also to couple with an Azure Landing Zone deployment. And I, we talked about that in the previous episode, what that is. So if, if you haven't tuned into that one, that might be a good fit if this topic is interesting to you, because that will help you and automate a lot of the kind of deployment around the Landing Zone itself, which is a framework, if you will, the infrastructure that you need to uh, hit the ground run, running. And then with the AVD Accelerator uh, for Azure Landing Zone, that also helps you set things up. And the setup doesn't have to be complex, but if you're looking at enterprise scale, you get things like the hub VNets in your region. You get Azure DDoS standard if you want, Azure DNS stuff, policy assignment, policy management, network watcher, security center, or um, yeah, Microsoft Defender for Cloud, as it's called today. You get the VNet peering so you can connect to the AVD subnets, you uh, you get a an AVD workspace, which is like the Azure Virtual Desktop management plane. 
And within that, you get a, a personal pool where you have an application group and you can start VMs when you connect to it and uh, Windows Virtual, like the Azure Virtual Desktop RDP stuff, with the host pools, you get a pooled pool where you can also connect to an AVD scaling plan and you can put a schedule on that saying, you know, we know that the majority of our users, they will start Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. Then therefore, 7.50, start all of these VMs up or all of these ABDs. So there's a bunch of stuff coming in. Also like key vaults and file shares and storage accounts, uh, all these things. And you have image templates and uh, like there's a bunch of these things. So if you're an enterprise, obviously there's a lot of things to think about. My number one tip, take a look at Azure landing zones that we talked about in the previous episode. And then after that, take a look at the enterprise scale support for Azure Virtual Desktop, which also exists in the cloud adoption framework because that has the big blue deploy button where you say, well, I want this. You can deploy it into your landing zone. And that is a great help if you're doing this at scale. And you can also just read that documentation. We'll put the link in the show note and that will show you kind of the moving parts. So if you're enterprise grade and you want to do this, take a look at that because that already considered and have proven uh, implementations of this running in enterprise scale deployments. So a lot of tips in there. That's a solid advice for sure. And if you do not have Azure landing zone in place to sort of design an approach, perhaps AVD, if you want to go all in with that one, would partially help in achieving that as well. And it's it's nice to see AVD as a workload that fits nicely with the Azure landing zone as well. So another thing is the VM sizing, meaning the VMs you spin up for AVD. And keep in mind, you might have five VMs, you might have 200 VMs, depending obviously on how many users you're planning on serving, what sort of workloads they're running, and are they going to be personal or pooled VMs? Meaning, are they dedicated to each employee or are you sharing the capacity and whoever connects remotely in hopes of perhaps running an application will just pick one randomly that's available at the time. So the VM sizing, you choose one based on workloads. And the recommendation, I did go through the documentation and I opted for the same in my labs, is the B series. Because that's the burstable VMs, meaning that they are ticking credits for for you to use later on if you underutilize these. And typically you do underutilize a VM quite quite massively. And then if you need to burst over that allocated resource, you have those credits in place as long as you do not shut down those VMs. So B series is great if you're unsure, but obviously you can create multiple pools with different tiers of VMs and, and, and capacity based on your needs. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, and this like this reminds me, one of the things that we that I had to do a lot in the past was like manage all the devices we had and ensure that they applied to policies and things like that. We get that obviously with the landing zone we just talked about uh, with applying policies. So whether you're using that or not, how do you manage the VMs at at this scale and how do you how do you do those things? Are we are we back to the same method as you manage any other device, or is there some trick for for doing this? Essentially, if you if you go all in in Azure and Azure Virtual Desktop, you would choose Intune for managing these VMs. So for sure, you could use a third-party endpoint management approach. It works as well. 
but Intune is is the native, if you will, the native way of managing those VMs. Obviously, if you do a hybrid setup, you might have logon scripts, you might have group policies and whatnot, because you would join those VMs in your existing domain as well. But Intune for anything cloud-based probably makes the most sense. And the same goes for app installation. You use the native approach in Intune, use the MSIX packages, so you can package your apps and publish those. Or you could do what's called a golden image. So you would pre-create a VM image, which would have everything you need, and then you would use that image as a template for spinning up your pool of, of multiple VMs. This brings me back to, I think, around 2001, where we created images based of, of of CD ROMs or DVDs at the time using narrow burning ROM that we purchased for our enterprise company at the time. And we created, we installed Windows Server on a bunch of machines and, and Windows, whatever that was, Windows 2000 or Windows, Windows Millennium even, I think 2000. We installed that and then we prepped with all the tools we needed with the right version because in this enterprise, you had to have a specific version of every software because otherwise everything broke because half of the business logic at this time was Excel macros and that only worked in a specific office version and whatever. Anyway, we created those. And I remember for all the time I spent there, a majority of the maintenance work we did was updating the images and rolling them out. And rolling them out meant we took the actual machine from the user into our lab we inserted the the disk and we wiped the entire machine, installing the new edition, and then rolled it back out. And they had to like copy their files back. Super strange if you compare to how things work today. Uh, so I'm happy to see this, you know, with the app installation. I haven't done like huge images for a long time, maybe because of my let's put air quotes around that uh, bad experiences uh, managing that at scale. Uh, but I love to see that you can roll out apps using MSIX and, and also have the option, of course, to do your golden image if you want. Just knowing that if you do that, you might have to kind of up, keep that up to date at some point. Now now that you mentioned the CD burner system and, and, <laughs> and also the narrow software, do you recall when, when the pieces were so sort of limited on, on resources? that if we were burning a CD, that you couldn't really do anything else on the machine at the same time, or otherwise the burner wouldn't get this sustainable, solid writing speed of 600 kilobytes per second or what, whatever it was at the time. And then it would complete the burn, but it would complain at the end that there's inconsistencies. Then you put mm. the CD, the just burned CD to a different PC, and it would give you the cyclical error because something was off on the CD and then it would throw that disk away. Yeah. Oh, the good old times. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, moving on. Uh, a quick word on something called the FS logics. So this is a technology that brings you roaming profiles in essence. So it's a business that Microsoft acquired in 2018. And user profiles, meaning that when a user logs into their Windows box, they have the profile with OneDrive for Business set up and wallpapers and whatever they have, their documents and so on. Those are now stored in what's called a container, but it's it's not like a Docker container. 
So it's stored in a single container and that container is attached to AVM in AVD when the user signs in, if you choose to configure the FSLogix approach. I was confused in, in the beginning of starting my journey with AVD in a couple of projects that constantly the Microsoft documentation was saying, yeah, yeah, go for FSLogix. And FSLogix was like, no, it's not like a Microsoft thing. It's something else. But yes, it's part of this and, 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 and you can utilize this. This is also required if you want to have the full OneDrive for business, business experience, where when a user logs into an AVD hosted VM, they would have all of their files there already waiting for them. A bit on pricing. Any, any thoughts, Toby, on pricing, perhaps not just for AVD, but generally for VMs? I, I know you don't really spin those up too much, but if you need to spin up a VM in Azure, is, is price something you factor in? Or is your use so intermittent that you don't really care if it costs you 50 cents or one euro an hour? Yeah, that's a, that's actually a good question. And I, I think there is a, the answer here will depend on what hat I put on for the time being, right? If if I put on the enterprise hat, yes, it matters. If Even if I put on the, the small company hat, then, then it matters. So... I know with AVD, we took a look at that, and what you pay for is essentially the the VMs, your storage, and your networking. And here's a couple of things that come to mind. Selecting the correct or the right size type of storage for you will have an impact on cost. You can use premium SSDs, you can use standard SSDs, you can use you know different types of storage, and that might have an impact. But also the networking, right? One thing that I know we've talked about in several episodes, uh, but we haven't had a dedicated episode on that, it is the cost uh, of transferring data between regions in Azure or through the same region in Azure. And I think that's important also because if if you have, depending on how your network is set up, you need to be aware that you have egress and ingress cost for storage data, and that cost will vary depending on where the data goes and for how long that goes and so on. So for example, if you have, let's say you have an Azure function in a storage account and you send massive amounts of data between them, if that is in the same region, you don't pay for that cost, right? That there's a, a boundary there saying, well, this is within the same region, same Azure region. So there's no like egress cost for that. But if those two services are in different regions, you have to pay for the transaction as well. So that's something to factor in here as well when you have VMs, depending on where your users are accessing that VM from, what will the latency be? You know, how how long does it take to connect? What amount of data are you gonna uh, ship? And the storage accounts connected to the VM should, of course, be in the same region as the VM. But also, if that in turn is connecting to file shares or other SQL databases or big storages where you send massive amounts of data from that VM to another storage account, consider the region availability there as well. So, and and of course, this is. Anyone who's designed Azure solutions, anyone who's operated these things at scale will know that the cost of transactions will escalate as soon as you have kind of these deployments and you see them happening, especially cross regions uh, or even out of an Azure region to a, a client or a consumer. So that's something to keep in mind. So VM SKU, like the, the size of the VM will cost. The selection of storage account will cost you depending on what you choose and also depending on if your VM will then connect to something else in another Azure region, because then you have to pay for the networking and also the network uh, transaction between the actual client and the VM. 
so those are like kind of the things top of mind that I would raise a flag saying, take a look into this, right? If you know that you're going to have the enterprise scale AVD landing zone accelerator deployed, you're going to have this kind of setup and we're going to have these users from these region connecting into these VMs. Then you can estimate kind of what you, you might know the actual, might not know the actual figure it's going to end up costing you, but you can estimate what types of costs uh, you will have, and then you can kind of cost control that or, or draw boundaries around that with your cost budgets and cost alerts and stuff like that. So keeping yep. that in mind, but that, that's all I know about this. Anything else? Yeah, it makes, makes perfect sense. And <clears throat> just to clarify uh, a bit for somebody thinking about AVD, what does it actually cost in, in real numbers? I ran through the exercise on Azure pricing calculator. So let's say we set up an AVD setup for 500 users. We do the pooled approach, meaning we are sharing those VMs. Then we also do multi-session, meaning that a single VM might have multiple users in at the same time. But the workload type is heavy, meaning that they're running something that requires more resources, perhaps uh, graphical design software or, or, or massive Excels or whatever you, you, you would typically run. Uh, so 500 users, and in total, they would use maybe 220 usage hours per month. Peak concurrency, meaning how many of those 500 users would be using those at the same time would be 90%. Off-peak, weekends, evenings, early mornings would be just 5%. And for a VMs, that would be D4S, meaning four CPU, 16 gigs of RAM. The, the total cost would be about 3,700 euro, which is about the same in dollars, I think. Per user, though, the cost is 7 euro 40 cents per month. So in, in, a, in a way, it's super affordable because for AVD, you are not paying on anything on top of the infra. You pay for the VMs, you pay for storage, you pay for networking, but AVD itself doesn't impose any additional cost. For external users, users who are contractors or guests who also need to access these, there's a fixed fee of 9.2 euro if they want to use desktop and applications, meaning they want to access the VM, they also want to run off applications from there. So in a way, it's fairly transparent in the pricing, but also depending on how many users and how often and they're planning on using this, that will perhaps drastically change the monthly cost in there. So I would perhaps advise to start with a pilot group of 10 people or 20 people just to see a pattern on how are we actually using this before committing to something like 500 or 2,000 users and, and just blindly hoping that the cost will land where you estimate it to land. Yeah, so I think this makes sense. And like talking about pricing and things like that, this this is a lot about educating ourselves on how this uh, works and and how we can use it. So speaking about ed educating ourselves on this or, or upskilling, if you will, let's say that now in the coming year, we need to deploy AVD for our organization. We're an enterprise. How do I like, how do I study for this? How do I prepare for this? Is there something I can use to prepare myself as an expert in this area so I can guide my organization in, in getting this out the door? Good question. I would definitely start on the Microsoft Learn 
content. So there's a couple of tutorials on how to get up and running. I've done those and, and they educate me nicely because when I'm doing, I'm also learning at the same time. And at the end of the tutorials, I actually have something up and running that I can configure. So let's add the links to the show notes for those. But then there's also the official certification exam, AZ140. So AZ104 is the Azure admin one, and AZ140 is the configuring and operating Microsoft Azure Virtual Desktop. I've, I've gone through the learning material myself, but I haven't done the exam yet. Perhaps because I don't really work with AVD that much, but the more I look at it, I'm like, hmm, yeah, I could actually do the exam as well. There's quite a bit of tiny technical things you need to learn by heart. But other than that, it ties nicely into everything you already know about Azure. So AZ140, a traditional certification exam. Yeah, makes sense. All righty. I, I think that's, that's all we had for AVD. The last bit is the unexpected question. And, and Toby? Based on my bookkeeping, I'm going to be asking you the question. Are you ready? All right, let's shoot. If you had three months and you wouldn't have to work, what would be a skill or a talent you would like to learn and essentially master in that time? That's a great question. So I, I have two things. Uh, one is I would probably get a personal tutor for the piano and the saxophone because I, I love playing music. I'm self-taught at saxophone, trombone, uh, baritone, piano, guitar, like all, all kinds of instrument. And I'm okay with them. Like I'm, I'm not a virtuoso, but I can play pretty good. But I would love to learn the proper way so I could really start playing like the masterpieces. So that's one thing that I would do. Three months is a very short time for that. But if, if we're talking about full-time, 12 hours a day, you know, I, I might be able to achieve something. The other thing, that I would do if I couldn't do that is to study for one of the languages uh, that I want to learn. So either I'd spend full time learning uh, French or Italian, because uh, I, I think that's achievable. My my better half, she did that when we lived in Italy for a couple of months. She studied for three months in Verona in Italy. She studied Italian, never studied Italian before. She was fluent at the end of three months, which is pretty cool because that was kind of full time every day we were in Italy everyone refused to speak english with us uh, which was you know a great learning experience so that would be my other option if i didn't do the instrument thing i'd probably take the family would move to italy uh, and and i'll be spending 8 hours a day learning italian if you if you choose to go with the latter i'll join you i'll just do chianti and pizza three months and <laughs> i don't really care about the language for now but but the scenery the weather everything in italy that's great all righty Thanks for joining us. See you next week. All right. See you then.